If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 8. That's going to be on page 1008 in some of your Bibles. And I did look this week. It's on 945 in the other Bibles that are in here. So equal opportunity on those. Hebrews chapter 8. While you're getting there, let me ask you a question. Would you rather on Christmas morning go to you know the tree or whatever and receive as your gift a model of like your favorite car, that's a Ferrari or, um, you know, a, a jacked up, lifted pickup truck, or maybe you want an airplane, maybe you want a boat, but get a model. Would you rather have a model or would you rather look out like those Lexus commercials and there's one in the driveway with a bow on it, right? Which one would you rather have? I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious, right? Which one is better, the model or the real thing? Like a model, I mean, it's got some purpose that we can look at it, we can learn from it, we can see a little bit about what something should look like, but it's not the real thing. It's a copy. It's a picture. It points to something better. It points to the true and better reality. And friends, this is exactly what Hebrews 8 is all about. It is all about and just and hammering away at the fact that models are not as good as the real thing. And the, the models that it has in mind particularly are the Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant sacrificial system. And what the author is saying is they are just models. They are not the real thing. They were never intended to be the real thing. They were models to point us to Jesus. That's their job. The real thing is Jesus. He's the true and better priest that all the priesthood was to point to. And he's the true and better covenant that the old covenant pointed to. He mediates it. And so the author is arguing like we don't need the models anymore. They have served their purpose. The real thing has come. We don't need to see what it would look like. We've got the real thing with a bow on top sitting in the driveway. And so this morning, that's kind of, I mean, that's all we're going to talk about. We're going to camp out on the true and better fulfillment of these two things, the priesthood and the old covenant. So if you're taking notes, put this down, number one, in your notes. The true and better priest reigns on high. The true and better priest reigns on high. And so look at verse one with me in Hebrews chapter eight. <clears throat> Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. And what he's doing here is he's referring back to verse 26 of chapter 7. So look up at that. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. All right, so now back to verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so the first thing we see here is like Jesus is exalted. I mean, the argument is, hey, who of you earthly priests have ever mediated from heaven? Have ever ministered from You ever done that? No, Jesus has. Jesus does. He's a better priest. The models don't do that. Jesus fulfills the role sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven like he's a different level than all the other priests he's exalted in heaven 
Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, explaining what happened because of Christmas. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so what this is talking about is sometimes referred to, and this is vocab day, vocabulary lesson, Christ's session. It's something I've tried to teach you over the last couple of years. Christ's session. That when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, but it's an exclamation point on the completion of defeating sin and death. Like he's done it. It's completed. He can now sit down. It is finished, as he said. His sacrifice was sufficient to atone for sin. All right, That's one thing that Christ's session shows us. But the right hand is specifically a place of power and exaltation. It's imagery drawn from like the ancient world where kings would have nobles and they would put nobles beside them. And the one that sat on the right hand side was like the most prestigious, the most exalted, the most powerful. That's where this imagery comes from. And so Jesus' ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father means he's not only priest, but he's also king. Like right hand is a place of power. He's the true and better priest, and he's the true and better king. He's the true and better priest who reigns on high. Reigning means kingship. And so a couple years ago, uh, we preached through... Uh, four, we were very bold in here. We preached through four books of the Old Testament. Um, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, right? If you were here at that time, by the end of the sermon series, every single sermon was basically the same. This king's awful. We need a better king. Next week, this king was also terrible. We need a better king, right? On repeat. And that king is Jesus. That's what all of those bad kings were to show us, that we need a better king. Like the Old Testament kings, they ruled over a portion of God's people for their lifetime, but Jesus rules over all of God's people of all time and always forever. And it's not just like someday he'll be king, someday he'll do that. It's right now, present. Like, we all know Jesus is coming back, riding on a white horse, victorious over his, over his enemies, fun, you know, flame coming out of his mouth. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. We're looking forward to that. We long for that. There will be justice for evil, finally. And there will be grace for the repentant, unlimited. And so we long for that. We look forward to that. King of kings, Lord of lords, when the rest of Philippians 2 becomes a reality so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like that day is coming. Every knee will bow. Every knee. Not a question of whether you're going to bow. It's just a question of how will you bow? As a throne? As a, as a trophy of His grace? Or as a trophy of His judgment? But every knee will bow one way or the other. That's not a question. 
every knee will bow. And so that's coming, second advent. But here's the deal. He's reigning right now. Like not just someday, but right now. 1 Peter 3.22 says this. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Like right now. That's not just someday. That's right now. Christ is reigning. Christ is ruining. He's the king of the universe. Right now, everything is subject to him. This can't be stopped. He's the king of the universe. And so during, like in this world of craziness, this should be a warm blanket to us and something we have to constantly remind ourselves of. I mean, so much of Christianity, we were talking about this Last night in my own house, so much of Christianity is reminding yourself of what is true. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and reminding yourself of what is true. All this stuff's not that, 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 that Satan's throwing at me, that the world's throwing at me, that's coming at me. Like, that's flaming darts. But remind myself of what is true. And we need to remind ourselves right now of what is true. Jesus is on his throne even now. Even in the midst of the chaos of the world. And some of you are like, but it sure doesn't seem like it. What's going on in my life, it sure doesn't seem like it. What's going on in my friend's life, it sure doesn't seem like it. How, How is he on his throne in the midst of all of this? This is where we have to remember the loom. Right? And some of you have seen one, maybe your grandmother had one, weaving something, you've seen how it works, or you've seen one in a museum, but there's two sides of whatever's being woven, right? There's the underneath side that's messy and ugly, and there's the above side where everything makes sense and is beautiful. Friends, we live underneath the loom where life just looks like a bunch of tangled knots, chaos, it's kind of ugly, doesn't look good. It doesn't make any sense. But God lives above the loom. Where he dwells, he sees this beautiful tapestry that he's weaving together. And he's in complete control. And we just can't see that because we're not God. We're limited. He's not. But our true and better priest is the true and better king. And he reigns on high. And he reigns king, right? As he does that, he also ministers priest to us. So look at verse 2. I'll just go back and read verse 1 as well. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Like Jesus is in heaven, true tent, ministering to us. Like he didn't just leave us, he didn't just come and live, die for us and leave us to ourselves. He gave us the Holy Spirit and he is in heaven right now, ministering, mediating, interceding. Saving us. And somebody's like, but I was saved a long time ago. How's he in heaven saving me right now? Well, we talked about it last week. You've got to remember, salvation has 
tenses, past, present, and future. And so Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And he will save us someday from the very presence of sin. Sin will be extinct. It will be no more. It's kind of like uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, right? Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And so you've got Christmas past, the first advent. We have a coming Christmas future, second advent. But right now we live in Christmas present and He's reigning on high, ministering to us, changing us, transforming us bit by bit. And so let's keep going. Look back at verse 1. And so now the point in what we're saying, like all that we've been through in chapter 7 especially, is this. We have such a high priest. Everything he's described. One who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, at the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And what's that? Himself. He offered himself. Verse 27 above, chapter 7. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. All right? So, verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus is it necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Like, you have to be a Levite, and he's of the tribe of Judah, a king. But he's not just a priest. He's not made a priest by the law, but by the power of an indestructible life. We talked about that last week. Verse 5, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so what he's saying is that the tabernacle, right? You remember back to Exodus that we went through last spring, All the details, we preached through that. If you weren't here, you can watch it on YouTube. But the tabernacle and then later the temple served as shadow or a metaphor for heaven. And so the point is that Jesus ministers in heaven, not a tent. So who's the better priest? The one who plays with the model or the one who's got the real thing and inhabits the real thing? The real thing. I was right. Thank you. He is the true and better priest that all the other priests point to. And this eternal, sympathetic, ministering high priest reigns on high now. The model is given way to the real thing. And, it, and he can do for us what the model cannot. Rescue us from Satan sin, hell, death, the grave, and ourselves. 
it's a given way to the real thing. Same thing with the old covenant. Look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and what we're about to read is just a quote of Jeremiah 31 that we all recited together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So Moses, Sinai, right? But they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here come all the better promises he just talked about. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so if you're taking notes, number two in your notes, the true and better covenant has arrived. The true and better covenant has arrived. And so again, the the argument is there was a model, okay? It was a good thing. It served a purpose. It pointed to the true and better reality But just like all modern cars today, it had a planned obsolescence. Like it was temporary on purpose. It was never meant to terminate on itself. The old covenant was never meant to be like the answer. It was to point forward like a model to the new covenant. Like the old covenant sacrificial system spilling constant repetitive blood of bulls and goats could not save. It pointed to a greater covenant that could and would. And that's why there was a need for a better one. Now, this is where we need to be very careful because this is a place where sometimes we get a little bit confused because when we talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which is very much the Old Testament and the New Testament, sometimes we get this flawed thinking as if God had plan A and that was the Old Covenant. And that didn't work out. God wanted it to, but it didn't. And so he had to reactively figure something else out. And so he's like, oh, I'll do this Jesus thing. That's my plan B. Friends, that is, that's no more true than thinking that the Old Testament is about an angry God and the New Testament is about a loving God. Like both of those, that's, those are both flawed ideas. Wrong ideas. God is unchanging in character. So he doesn't change between the Old Testament and New Testament. And he's unchanging in his plan. 
He didn't change from one plan to another. He's sovereign. He doesn't like have to course correct. He's not like, you know, those, those cars today that you start to get out of lane. They like bring you back in. He didn't need any of that. He didn't need any help with any of this. His steering's never off. Like you understand, God has never been nervous. Now you, you need to understand that. Like he's never worried. There's no cause for him to be nervous. There's never a question, I hope this works out. There's never been a cause for him to be worried, to be nervous. He's never like, oh my word, I didn't know they were going to do that. What am I going to do now? Never. It's impossible. You know, Isaiah 46 says, He declares the ends from the beginnings and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And so always and forever, before the foundation of the world, God planned and knew that for His glory, He would send Jesus into the world to rescue sinners. That's always been plan A. New Covenant has always been plan A. He just rolled it out progressively. This is called progressive revelation. Now, don't confuse that with, the, with progressive theology. That's wonky. That's heretical. Progressive revelation just means He didn't give us everything all at once. Like when you look at the Bible, you do, the Bible was written over 1,500 years. Right? We didn't get everything at once. The first thing you got was the Pentateuch, Moses. And then we started getting more books. Written over 1,500 years on three continents by 40 authors in three different languages, but it all tells one cohesive story. Sally Lloyd-Jones, we promote this book all the time, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Adults, you should read this Bible. And she explains it like this. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. Even Andrew Peterson reads this in his concerts. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. That's what this story's about. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. And there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would Depend. And so Jesus is the scarlet thread 
that runs all throughout the scriptures, tying it together. He was and is and always will be plan A. God did not change his mind, but he did roll things out progressively. And so through the pages of scripture, as you look, there are partial fulfillments here, and there's a picture here, and there's a type of Christ here, and there's a foreshadowing here, and all of that is pointing forward. Colossians 2.17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the whole story of the Bible is like a great work of classical music or a skyscraper. It begins and the form is already there, but as it develops and comes to completion, it becomes so much more and so much more beautiful than you ever first realized at the beginning. And that's the case with the Old Covenant giving way to the New Covenant. The people could not keep the Old Covenant. And that was kind of the whole point. They needed a Savior. They needed a a better priest. They needed a better covenant. And so on that first Christmas morning, 2,000 years ago, the shadows evaporated because the real thing had arrived. The better priest with a better ministry had come to mediate or carry out a better covenant based upon better promises. And what are those promises? Verse 10. I will put my laws into their hearts. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I.e., God will transform us by His Word. And so be encouraged here. If you have trusted in Christ truly, He will, like He, emphasis there, will work faithfulness into your life. He will do that. It's not a question of if, but when and how. He will do this by His grace, for His glory, and your ever-increasing joy because He loves you. And we've got a little video that kind of shows what this process looks like, what this sanctification, what this transformation looks like. sanctification <laughs> and did you catch the end at the end and what am I going to what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hold him for a little bit longer that's the way the Lord transforms us he doesn't quit he doesn't get overly frustrated He keeps on. He is a sympathetic high priest. He welcomes us in. He doesn't hold us at arm's length. The only thing he does with his arms, he sticks both of them out. And he welcomes us in. 
and holds us, loves us, changes us for our good, watching over us, caring for us. And if he needs to hold us a little bit longer, he will. That's a better promise. He will transform us. It also says there at the end of verse 10, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the eschatological overtones of this are thick. Like it's already true. Once we become a believer, He is our God. We are His people. But it's not as true as it's going to be someday in the new heavens and the new earth. Second advent, Christmas future. That's why Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, that is a better promise. And this is grounded in the core of the new covenant, which is there in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus, through His life and death and resurrection, has fully and finally paid for our sin. And it is no longer held against us. We've been set free from the curse. That's why there's joy to the world. For as the curse is found, like it's gone, the curse has been ended by our true and better high priest who mediates a true and better covenant. And so God's not going to rebuild the model again. It has done its job. He has now brought the real thing with the bow on top. And so because of this, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Truly, let your hearts be light. And we tweak one word to make it true, not about sentimentality. For someday, all our troubles will be out of sight. Because the true and better priest, or the true and better covenant, has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you have come and accomplished redemption. That you have completed the defeat of sin and death. And now you are ministering and you are continuing to bring into full effect what has already been accomplished on the cross. And we long for that day and we look forward to that day. Especially amidst loss and destruction all around us. But we know right now as we are trapped between these two advents. 
you are here. You are Emmanuel with us. You are ministering to us. And your kindly rule will bring us all the way home. It's because you are alive, Jesus, that we can face tomorrow with whatever it may bring. That you will walk with us. With love and grace that we. It is impossible for us to emphasize it enough. Love and grace. Mercy. And so Father help us during this season to lift our eyes to heaven. Where Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling even now. And may that give peace to our hearts. That you see the loom, you see the tapestry, and it's beautiful. Help us to trust when we see the tangled knots. In the name of Christ, we ask this. Amen.